Alright, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. To the book of Daniel. That's where we're going to be beginning this evening. In Daniel. Uh, oftentimes, I find myself wishing, as maybe you uh, have experienced as well, um, that when we go to the Bible and there's a specific scenario or something going on in our life or uh, a particular problem or situation, that there would just be chapter and verse, something that would tell me, do this or don't do this, uh, and that's, it's not there. There's not something that addresses that exact specific scenario or situation, and I wish there was because that would make it a lot easier. Um, but oftentimes, and really a lot of the time in the Bible, uh, it's not exactly how God reveals his will to us. That a lot of times there are these principles or these overarching themes that we find in the Bible that are a little bit harder to dig out or a little bit harder to understand and apply to our life and shape our life around. Uh, but a lot of the time we just get these ways to live or this type of person to be uh, that leaves a lot more up to our interpretation of how to live. And we're going to try, and I'm going to try and dive in with you guys to one of those ideas this evening, as we're going we're gonna to look at exile. Uh, so if you'll open up your Bibles to Daniel 2 is where we're going to begin. To give a little bit of context, the Babylonians that have come to Jerusalem during King Jehoiakim's reign, and they've taken back a lot of uh, officials and the youngest and the brightest of the people there in Jerusalem, and they've taken them back to Babylon because they're going to train them up, uh, to become officials in their kingdom, or leaders, or governors, or whatever it may be uh, in Babylon. And so they brought them back, and the first six chapters of Daniel uh, really are narrative, are stories of some of these young men, four of these young men, who have been taken back, and their life as exiles. Uh, their life living in Babylon, and then a little bit later uh, under King Darius in Persia. But it, it's kind of the way they live in Babylon, and that's what we're going to kind of look at tonight. And so in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 9, King Nebuchadnezzar has had this terrible dream, and he hasn't been able to sleep that night. And he calls his wise men in, and he says, Hey, I've had a terrible dream. I need someone to interpret it. And the wise men say, Well, of course, sure. Tell us your dream, and we'll, we'll give you the interpretation. And he says, No, 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 no. I want you to tell me what the dream was, and then you interpret it for me. Uh, and that's where we pick up in verse 10. The wise men are like, nobody can do this. Are you, are you kidding? So in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 10, that's where we pick up in the story. It says, The Chaldeans answered, and the king said, answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the, of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he may show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. 
And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Starting in verse 20, verses 20 and 23, uh, raise your hands. How many uh, of your Bibles have this kind of set off in poetry? Like there's different lines kind of set off. You can tell it's not a part of the narrative. Yeah, most people are raising their hands. Okay, cool. That's perfect. That's because it is. It's poetry. And so something that's helpful, anytime that you're reading through a narrative in the Bible and suddenly there's a little section of poetry that pops up, reread that like five times because you're about to get the important themes or messages of the book or this section of the text uh, that are about to pop up. And verses 20 through 23 right here are no different. That we're about to get the main themes and ideas, almost a roadmap of the book of Daniel right here in these three verses. So starting in verse 20 of Daniel 2, it says, Daniel answered and said, this is him blessing God of heaven. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. And so here in this little poem, especially verses 21 and 22, verses 20 and 23 kind of at the end are, are praise that kind of block this in. But think about verses 21 and 22 in context of the rest of Daniel. That 21 says he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings, and gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Uh, and the first six, chapter, six chapters of Daniel are going to be about uh, Nebuchadnezzar rising to power and him being prideful and then falling, and then a new king is set up, and then Persia conquers Babylon, and now Daniel is serving the Persian Empire and a new king, and, and God, God is the one that's in control, is what Daniel's trying to emphasize. God is the one who is in control of history. He's the one that sets up the times and season. He's the one that sets up kings and takes them down. And then verse 22 talks about how he reveals these deep and hidden things and knows what's in the darkness. And 7 through 12 is this apocalyptic section of Daniel that's kind of confusing to us and intense and symbolic language. And then this little poem here in the middle of the narrative is kind of giving us an idea of what Daniel's going to be driving at the rest of the time. We're going to focus on verses 21 as we talk about the exile and how God is the one who's in control. And God is the one who sets up kings and takes down kings and how he takes care of the exiles. And we're going to look at the way that Daniel and his friends live in exile. So in this time, when you're taken into captivity and you're living as an exile, you essentially kind of have two options of how to go about that. Uh, you can either choose to, one, bide your time, wait for weakness in the kingdom, and then rebel. Look for your opportunity for some kind of coup or to get yourselves out of it to fight back uh, and get yourselves out of exile. Or option number two, what people typically did, was they assimilated. Uh, they decided, okay, this is where I'm at now, and they changed their name, they changed their clothes, worship different gods, change their whole culture and their identity, and they become... Babylonian or Persian or Assyrian or whoever it is that's taken them into exile. And they become a part of that culture. They lose their old identity and they assimilate into the new culture that they've been taken captive into. And those are kind of typically the two options uh, that we see people at this time do, the two different things that they do when they're taken into captivity, when they become exiles. Uh, but that's not what we see Daniel and his friends do. They don't do either of these things. Um, because God's way is 
as always, kind of radical and countercultural and different and not what the rest of the world does. Uh, and so we're going to kind of look, take a look at this third way of how Daniel and his friends live. And to, to get a better look at that, I want us to turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon, and we have it recorded in Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you'll turn there with me to Jeremiah 29, not terribly too far back, back in your Bible, it's just a handful of pages back. And we're going to look at this, this letter from, uh, from Jeremiah to the exiles. Here at this point, uh, in 2 Kings 24, uh, starting in about verse 10, uh, you can read about the second wave of captivity that Babylon brings back into the land uh, under the reign of Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah. And he takes back, this time, uh, all the craftsmen and all the rest of the wise people, pretty much everybody except the lower class and the poor people in Jerusalem. They bring them all back to Babylon. And just following that is when we find Jeremiah sending this letter to the exiles in Babylon, after round two of this exile. So Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had all departed from Jerusalem. All 2 Kings 24. The letter was sent by the hand of, of Elash, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, here's the contents of the letter, verse 4. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners and who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name and I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you out, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah sends this message to the exiles in Babylon. This is, this is his exhortation to them. His, his calling of what they should do while they're there, his encouragement to them. Uh, but it doesn't sound like either of the two options that we talked about. But it kind of has pieces of some of them. And so that's why it's confusing. Because he calls them to, he says, build homes there in verses 6. He says, plant gardens, live in them. Basically, buckle up. You're going to be there for a while. You're going to be there for 70 years. So create a life there. But he doesn't call them to assimilate. He doesn't call them to become Babylonians because then what he says in verse 10, he says, when the 70 years are completed, I'll visit you and I'll fulfill my promise to bring you back. 
So, so now that option is out. You can't assimilate, but he's called them to be peaceful and seek the welfare of the city in verse 7. But they can't assimilate either because he says, I'm going to give you a hope. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to restore you. So they can't assimilate either. And so they find themselves in this weird middle ground of, of what do we do? How do we live as an exile and please God? And it seems like this really sticky situation of, of how, how do we even go about this? How do we do both or neither at the same time? Where does this leave us in comparison to everyone else? How do we live as people of God and exiles? And so what God is calling them to do is to be submissive but also be subversive, uh, if that makes sense. And he's called them to submit to the land. Uh, submit to whoever the powers are and seek the welfare of the city, Jeremiah calls them to. Uh, but he says, don't, don't give your allegiance to them. Don't become Babylonians. Because I'm going to give you a hope. I'm going to get you out. You're not going to be in exile forever. So don't get used to it. Seek the welfare of where you're at for now, but, but don't get used to it. I'm going to take you out. That's not your home. And so it leaves God's people in this weird situation in the middle where he calls them to submit but not give their allegiance. Where he calls them to be peaceful but also to not give in to their culture, to be countercultural and subversive and different. And it's a tough spot to be in for God's people. To do that well is difficult. But we'll see Daniel and his friends do it very well. If you'll turn back with me to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to see here right from the get-go, Daniel and his friends uh, being submissive, but also being subversive. And so in Daniel 1, starting in verse 3, it says there, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and they would teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were our main characters, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So we get this, this interesting situation here at the beginning uh, of the book of Daniel. Where Daniel and his friends uh, are going to, they've become exiles, they've been taken into Babylon. And immediately we kind of get the context of what's going to happen while they're in Babylon. Uh, that they're going to be educated like Babylonians, they're going to be taught the language, they're going to be taught their literature. Their names are going to be changed, uh, which are all typically signs of assimilating, of becoming like Babylonians. Uh, but, then, but then we see that, that they're not. They prove that they're not assimilating. They're, they're submitting. They allow things to happen. They're going to live in the land. Uh, but then we saw there at the end that the king is going to assign them uh, different food. And here they're subversive. Here they take their stand. Here they show that they're not going to assimilate. Uh, and whatever the reason may be, it doesn't seem totally clear. There's not, 
really any specific food laws that seem to be violated here or kosher or anything like that. And meat sacrifices to idols weren't taking on huge significance till the New Testament, although it could have been one of the two of those things. We don't really know what it is. What we do know is that typically the Jewish people uh, had always been sensitive uh, about food, uh, traditionally. And food was something that carried great significance to them. It always has and it still does today. And so for whatever the reason may be, this was significant to them. And they took their stand there and said, we're not going to assimilate. We're not going to be like your culture. And kind of stuck their necks out on the line. That they could have gone poorly for them. Uh, but they said, in this way, we're not going to assimilate. We're going to be subversive. We'll submit. We'll learn your language and we'll learn your literature. And we'll even serve your government and your kingdom, as we're going to see. Uh, but here, this one violates our conscience. This one violates what we feel like it is to serve God or to be people of God. And they choose to be subversive in this way, to be different, to be countercultural. And they choose not to eat the food, and we'll see that that goes well for them. Uh, and, and they don't rebel or do anything violent, but they're still subversive. They're still countercultural. They're still different. Well, then we're going to see over in Daniel uh, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to build this great big golden image, and he's going to ask the people to bow down to it. And we get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, sorry, we're not going to bow down to the golden image. Uh, they're working as officials o- over the kingdom of Babylon. They're serving the kingdom. Uh, they're, su- they're submitting. They're not just submitting. They're, they're helping uh, rule this kingdom. They're helping the king officiate his business. But when it comes to this, when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar building up this great statue and this great image, and he says, everyone needs to bow down to it and worship it. And they draw the line there. And they decide this time to be subversive. Sorry, we'll serve you and we'll submit and we will seek the welfare of the city. But our allegiance is with God, not with Babylon, not with man. And they stand up and they won't bow. And the king comes to them and says, what are you guys doing? What do you think you're doing here? And they say, sorry, You can throw us in the furnace. Our God will deliver us. He'll take care of us. But our allegiance is with him, not with you. And the king gets piping hot mad and throws them in the furnace. uh, And they're fine. God delivers them. But they choose to be subversive. They choose not to assimilate. They'll submit. But they won't assimilate. They won't give their allegiance to man or to Babylon. Their allegiance is with God. Well, then in Daniel 6, we come upon Daniel 6, and now there's a whole new king and a new empire. Darius of the Medes and the Persians is now in charge, and Daniel's serving him still. Uh, not even in Babylon anymore, but whoever, whoever the king is, it's Darius, and now Daniel is one of uh, his highest officials. In fact, Daniel is one of the officials that is most over the kingdom. Pretty much second in command to the king at this point. But the king is going to set up three guys that are kind of underneath him to take charge. And Daniel rises to the top of those three even. But then Daniel's allegiance is called into question. Daniel's allegiance to whether it's going to be to Darius or to the kings of this earth or to God is called into question. And he answers that his allegiance is with God. That he goes and prays anyway even though it's outlawed by the king. That the other wise men come to him with this decree that essentially is going to exalt Darius himself. They say, people should only be allowed to pray to you, king. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? 
And he says, yeah, that does sound nice. I would like it if for a whole month everybody was only praising me and exalting me. And he passes that law. As the kingdoms of man often seek to exalt themselves. And Daniel says, sorry, I won't do it. God's my king. My allegiance is with him. I'm willing to submit. I'll be your second in command. I will serve your kingdom. But my allegiance is where I draw the line. And my allegiance is with God. Not with any kingdom or any power or any man. It's with God. Even to the point where he's throwing in a lion's den. Look at me with, in Daniel chapter 6. Listen to the way he reacts. Daniel epitomizes this idea of still being submissive and loving, but also being subversive and countercultural and different. Because he's been thrown in the lion's den by the self-exalting king. And listen to how he reacts when he comes out. Daniel chapter 6. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions as he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish, and the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. Because he had trusted in God. But he comes out of that lion's den and still gives respect to the king that threw him in there. Then he comes out of the lion's den and says, O king, live forever. Which is, we'll see in, in the book of Daniel, the wise men often address Nebuchadnezzar or Darius or whoever it is, O king, live forever. That this is kind of the term of respect that you greet the king with. And so Daniel comes out of the lion's den and his business as usual. O king, live forever. I'm fine. I'm okay. I trusted in God and he delivered me. And it says there at the end of verse 23, it was because of his trust in God. Because his allegiance was with God. Because he was willing to be subversive in the midst of being submissive. Uh, which is a really difficult thing to do. And yet Daniel does it so well, even to the point where he's, he's given over to be eaten by lions and he comes out to the very man who threw him in. He's normal as can be, business as usual. Oh, king, live forever. I'm okay. Respect to my king. I'm okay. Unchanged for him. And so the way that God has called, to people, has called his people to live is this third option, this third way, this way that man typically doesn't go for. That it's not violent and slanderous and rebellious, but it's not total assimilation or allegiance either. That it's this weird place in the middle that we get caught in. Where we're called to submit and we're called to follow and, and do whatever is, is asked of us as far as the kingdoms of this world. But when it comes to where our allegiances lie, we're called to draw the line and be submissive or be subversive, excuse me, and be different and countercultural and even radical sometimes the way that Jesus is. And it's this really difficult, hard line to tow. But God's called us to tow it. 
to walk along that, that thin line of that, that, uh, this uncomfortable space. He's called us to live as exiles still today. In the, in the book of Revelation, if you'll turn there with me, in Revelation 18. In Revelation 18, John uses some imagery and symbols here that I'd like to key in on. Because he suggests that Babylon still exists, even though we know that the literal kingdom does not. He says, starting in verse 1, he says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. That John describes Babylon as a type for the powers and the kingdoms of men. Uh, that Babylon still exists in whatever form it may be. We see this in Daniel 2. We didn't actually get into the vision, but it talks about how after Babylon will come another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom. But eventually one day, the beginning of verse 2 there will come true. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Because that stone will come through and will crush all those nations and crush the powers of men. But John describes Babylon as a type for, for all the kingdoms of men. He says, for all the nations have drunk the wine of her wickedness, of her sexual immorality, that all the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her or are like her. That even the merchants of this earth, the powers and the corporations or whatever it may be, any power of man or nation of man or king of man that seeks to exalt themselves and promote themselves and promote their own definition of what good and evil is, is Babylon. They are like Babylon. And we have to live in Babylon as exiles, as God's people. It's all around us, still. And we have to find our place in the middle somewhere, being submissive and still being subversive. Because Babylon is still all around us. Whether it is the media or if it is an, an employer of yours or a political party or the nation itself that you live in. Wherever it may be, America or somewhere else across the world, any, any power of man that seeks to exalt itself and promote its own definitions of what good and evil are is Babylon. But listen to how Peter addresses uh, the Christians in the book of First Peter chapter 2. Because God has called us to be submissive and subversive. He calls us to be submissive to these kingdoms and to these powers, but to remember where our true citizenship lies. To remember where our allegiance really belongs. That God calls us to remember that, that who we are, who we are fundamentally, is not a citizen of, of, a king, of some earthly kingdom or nation or a member of whatever political party or an employer of whatever employee of whatever corporation or whatever it may be, whatever power of man it is that we're being called into submission 
under at that time. That that's not who we are. That we're not called to assimilate and, and be that. that. That's not the end all be all of it. But that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Followers of Jesus. And Jesus calls his people to be different and to be countercultural in ways that are pretty difficult. But he also calls us to submit. <clears throat> to listen to how Peter addresses uh, the Christians in the, the region of Asia Minor. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom to cover up evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Peter writes to the Christians and he says, Beloved, we're sojourners and exiles. We're still in Babylon. We're still God's people in Babylon. And we're called to live as exiles that are submissive, but also radically countercultural and subversive. And we have to find that middle ground, that thin middle ground and balance on it and stay there. And make sure that it's clear that our allegiance belongs to God. But that we're not going to be violent, rebellious people either. Because God's called us to be peacemakers, to love our enemies. And he's called us to live in a radical, countercultural way that's really difficult. The unusual way of life that Jesus calls us to. Because it's how He lives. You can look throughout the Gospels and throughout the story of Jesus and you'll see that he was countercultural and radical and subversive uh, but also he was submissive too that he was submissive to the laws of Rome at the time or he, he kept the Sabbath with the Jews there that he followed the laws he was submissive uh, but his allegiance was to God that he flips all kinds of laws and ideas of the people on their head and says no 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 that's not what it's all about it's not about not just murdering someone. It's about not even being angry with your brother. That it's not about not actually committing sexual immorality or stealing someone from something, someone, but it's about not even coveting or even lusting. He says that it's so much more than that. That it's this whole new way of life that's more than just following the letter of the law. But it's about having your heart fully invested and it's allegiance given to God. But also called to be peaceful and full of love. And it's a difficult way of life. It's a way of life that is, I have a hard time living, of finding that balance. 
uh, of not becoming a Babylonian, not assimilating, and allowing myself to get sucked into the culture or the powers of this world. But also, while being subversive and being different, not being violent or slanderous about it either. But finding that peaceful, full of love, countercultural middle ground. And I've spent a lot of my life uh, being a Babylonian or being a slanderous rebel, being one or the other. Uh, and I'm ready to live like an exile, like a true exile. And recognize that the kingdoms of here of this time will pass away. That I'm called to submit to them and live in them and be a part of them right now, but they won't last. And remember that my allegiance belongs to the kingdom that will last forever. To the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. To live that countercultural, submissive, and subversive life. And so, this evening, if there's anyone here who's ready to live that life of an exile, ready to recognize that the kingdoms of this earth won't last, that Babylon will not last, that one day the beginning of uh, Revelation 18.2 will come true, that Jesus will come down and the angels will cry out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And the kingdom of God will reign forever. And we will get to be in His presence for eternity. And I look forward to that day.